welcome in to Minions and Musings. Welcome back, Evil Jeff, back behind the mic. We are diving into the Talislanta Handbook once again. This is part four of the Talislanta Handbook first edition of the rule system. And if you've kept up so far, part one was, uh, let's see, as I try to remember here without looking back, <laughs> was section one and section two of the rules. Part two was section three, four, and five of the rules. And part three is appendices one and two of the rules. We are going to finish up the handbook here, uh, going through the last three appendices that we have in the Talislanta handbook. So let's get right to it. Okay, appendices three is all about spells. Let's take a second to remind ourselves about spells themselves. Um, go back and listen to part two of this dive into Talislanta. Uh, that was section five talking about magic. Anybody with magic talent can cast a spell. Your magic rating will say whether or not you can't, you know, well, how well you can cast a spell, but also gives you a plus to your roll. Remembering that if you cast a spell at a higher level, that is going to decrease or add a negative to your roll. Anything above your current level as is basically a negative to your roll. So, and even when you are a practitioner of a spell there is still the chance that something can fail. Now, that's not to say that, oh, you have to roll a one. No, you have to have a negative to your casting ability or some sort of tractor when you're casting for your spell to fail. And remember, on a score of one to five on the action table, your spell doesn't go off. Now, if it's zero or less, then that's when you have the catastrophic failure that does something nasty to you, and that's for the GM to decide. So there is still a 25% chance that your spell doesn't work unless you've got you know, modifiers that give you extra bonuses. So if you ever get to a point where you have plus five, you're fairly safe. But early on, you're not going to be that way. So, what type of magic do we have in Talislanta? Well, the first set of spells that any practitioner would learn are these, what they call minor enchantments. And there are three of them. There are charms, there are cantrips, and there are hexes. Alright, so charms, you are uh, affecting emotional or physical changes in most types of living creatures. Not all creatures will fall subject to them. The most common types, fascination. So they're going to be, you know, looking at you like, ooh, what's going on? 
Or you could have a reverse of it. Inui or Anui. Where they don't even bother with you. Like, yeah, whatever. I don't look at it. Yeah. There's passion. You know, you can also uh, bind a creature, spellbind. And there are reverses of all these charms as well. Cantrips allow you to do things like, you know, safekeep, which is more or less a locking mechanism. Uh, you want to create a, uh, an aura on a an item so that it reads differently. You know, you can add a false... Uh, I can never say that word. False... Do, do, demoner? Duomener? Whatever. D-W-E-O-M-E-R. Somebody call in that can say that. Or I probably will actually just look it up online. In fact, I can do that right now. Okay, thanks to the amazing ability of the internet, the word is actually pronounced Dweemer. There are other pronunciations that you might use, but you know, five different sites all say Dweemer. Rather unfortunate thing. Doesn't sound very magical, but that's just what we've got there. <laughs> so, hmm. I'll call it something else. We also have hexes, so you can jinx somebody, uh, cause somebody to be obsessed with them, and so forth. Uh, be, you know, bewitching someone, haunting their dreams. So we've got lots of you know, interesting spells here. And while it doesn't state it straight up front, um, when you look at it, you have to kind of read in there. Uh, hexes, charms, things are a little bit different. Um, the level, uh, like for charms, you can influence one individual per level. That's where it is. And unless it's stated, it's a range of 10 feet around the caster. And it only lasts for 10 minutes. Unless it's stated otherwise within the spell itself, the minor enchantment. Say the charm itself. Uh, hexes will... Hexes are actually an indefinite duration. So you have to counterspell them. So, there's a lot of things that are already built in here. Um, GM, you know, GM and player definitely need to make sure they're up on the spells and make sure they know how it's listed and worded, etc. in there. We have basic spells broken into uh, seven areas. We have conjuration. We have divination. We have illusion. We have influence. Levitation, Metamorphosis, and Radiance. Okay. Uh, well, oh, and excuse me, uh, and Revealment. And we'll stop there for now. There's some other ones that I'll get to, but they're more specific, something that you might think about already. Uh, radiance, basically, it's a light spell. But it's a little bit different. You know, let's read some of this. Uh, create a sphere, beam, or burst of brilliant light. Okay, so you already have the option in there. Uh, if you're radiance, you can create a sphere, 20-foot radius area. Uh, 
if you are going to you know, do a burst of light to try to blind somebody, it's all done at once, so it's not going to stick stick around. If you're just eliminating, it's 10 minutes per level that you cast a spell at. Not the level of the caster, but what level you cast a spell at. Uh, where was the other one? Oh, illusion. So you can create any sort of object creatures, area of effect and everything. They feel, they appear real. Sound, sight, smell, taste, or touch. Okay, but when you get close to them, they could be seen for what they truly are. So it's possible if a particular creature or player happens to have magic resistance, they have to make contact with illusion, and that magic resistance helps with their perception, and they could quite possibly disbelieve the illusion. Alright, maximum area effect for the illusion spell. It is a one by one by one foot area per level of the spell. And duration is 10 minutes per level. So it's really not something that you're going to find that's going to last forever and ever. Except for maybe in some circumstances where some extremely powerful mage with some of the other spells that are out there create that. Uh, we also have a couple other spells, but these might seem a little familiar. Spell of Eldritch Power. So, let me see. I can either use Eldritch Power as a bolt or a shield. Okie dokie then. That sounds rather familiar. A bolt of elemental power. Or spell of elemental power. So I can use as a, a bolt or a shield. Oh, elemental earth, wind, ice, fire, or lightning. Hmm... See where this is going? Spell a mystic power. Use it as a bolt, which is more or less a mental energy, or a shield, protecting against mystic forces, psychic probing. Spells of influence or control. And then there's a spell of summoning and a symbol of power. And in here, at this end of it, we have the Talislantian script added in, so... And I like the script. I would love for if if somebody had actually done it, uh, a font done uh, with this Talislantian script. It'd be kind of neat to have it already done up in there, so you could type things up and make them look cool. Um, uh, symbol of power, by the way: uh, sigils, seals, and wards. There's also, at this point, sigils of legendary magicians. And we will touch back on these legendary magicians in a later podcast. Appendix 4 is your equipment and supplies list. So GMs and players like be hanging out in here looking at things. It starts off with the Weapons list, uh, showing you the damage. Damage is variable on with different weapons and everything. Uh, if you're going to have encumbrance to a degree, there is a weight to them. 
There's also a minimum strength requirement to employ the weapons as well. Um, and then there is the average cost. These costs are not written in stone. They're written in digital paper. Ha 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 No, they're written, not written in stone because prices can be adjusted. Used goods or shoddy goods would be half listed price. Or superior quality could be double the price. In an area where this particular thing could be illegal, 50 to 20 percent, excuse me, 50 to 200 percent increase. How about this? What if this has to be an item that's imported into an area? It's not illegal, but they don't make it there. It has to come from somewhere else. There's a tariff on that. So it's an additional 10 to 40 percent. So already as a GM, you're going to start playing some economics. You're not going to, you don't have to let these players get away with, well, you know, the book says it only cost one gold there. <laughs> you can charge more. You could charge less. You know, take all their money. Take all their money. <laughs> we also have uh, siege weapons and the ammunition for both siege weapons and and for missile weapons, like for arrows or crossbows and things like that. Uh, list of armor, the types, what protection level gives you. Um, also, we have a thing about shields. And this is where I finally started looking at it. And it's like, wait a minute. Whereas armor said it gave you certain protection, which is how much damage is going to reduce that's done. Shields don't have that. And this is where I had actually missed it early on and went back and had to look and saw that shields are only useful when you're doing a shield parry. That's the only time. If you take your action to take a shield parry, you can get rid of a lot of damage. In fact, these shields can handle at a minimum, 20 points of damage in a single attack before breaking. Catch that. Maximum damage, it can withstand a single attack without breaking. So as long as it never gets over that maximum damage, you don't have to worry about it breaking. So with some of the creatures that inhabit Talislanta that can do some massive damage, this is definitely uh, something that you could implement and protect yourself against those creatures. I mean, you're definitely going to do that. But for normal combat, unless you're doing a parry and that takes up your action, doesn't allow you to attack. So, you know, there it is. All right. Uh, what else was there? You know, there's equipment and so forth in here and you do have, uh, you know, average for beasts for food and lodging, black market wares and everything. Also tucked into this area, um, nice little pictures of the different types of weapons that are out there so you can at least see what they, they look like and get an idea for this. And then the two special types of ships within Talislanta. The uh, Dracardian's dune ships that skim across the deserts 
and information on the Cimmerillion and Fantasian Dream Merchants, their wind ships. So, yeah, you know, here, here we got some definite fantasy in there. And it's information on uh, what they would look like. Now, the dune ships are typically used by Dracardian military. So, it's not, I mean, you might have the occasional where a merchant might use one, but it's not going to happen very often. So, we do have that. The last appendice that we go through is the actual Game Master section. Uh, these are additional information that you would need to run the game, uh, reference materials, and so forth. It starts off by giving you a list of stats for all Taslantian encounters. Um, basically, this is the same information that's just distilled down to the bare minimum that you need from the Naturalist Guide to Taslanta. We'll talk about that in a future podcast. It also gives you guidelines for creating new life forms. Please note, they do not call anything here a monster. Unlike with D&D and thinking, oh, monster manual, these are the bad things. The flora and fauna of Talislanta is hostile. Anything could kill you. So, yeah, we're just going to talk about different life forms in here. And it goes through, and it does have uh, stats for also some of the same uh, playable races that your player could have. So, we do have that. Uh, there is a section if you would like to determine a character's background. You know, somebody might want to fill things out a little bit more. They don't have to. But it gives you uh, several tables to roll on, so you can decide, you know, what is your parentage? Are they still alive? Or are they dead? Do you have any siblings? This does go with the idea that you have a mentor that taught you your skills before you went out to ply your trade, whatever that is out there. Um, and then tables for your backgrounds. So, you know, if you were born in a city, or if you were a nomad, or a village, you know, what type of background would you have? Does that, and see, these are the back, these backgrounds, then also lend to the skills that you would have as well, so there is that. Um, there is a little bit of talking about if you want to have any followers, or hirelings, and so forth how you go about doing that. There's a lifespan chart for the different Taslantian races. Uh, you know, looking through them, uh, some basically adolescent, adult, middle-aged, and venerable. The adults are the ones where you're doing most everything, though you could be middle-aged. Uh, like you have in AD&D, in the GM's Guide, where it talks about getting to a certain age, you start reducing attributes and everything. Well, that's going to happen here, so it's available. The ages are interesting. Uh, where was one of them here? Like, uh, let's see, the gnome kin. Okay. 
Not the same gnomes that you and I are used to. They're a bit different. But adolescent for them is one to four years. Adults are from five to 50 years. Talk about growing up quick. Of course, the Iraq have them beat on that one. Adolescents only one to three years, and then they're adult for four to 19 years. The oldest Iraq is basically 30 years, you know, plus maybe six additional ones, so 36 in there. Unlike Gnomekins at, you know, 150 plus or minus 5D10. I mean, they can get pretty old there for venerable ages. So, lots of little notes in there. But you actually, as a player, determine what age you start at. Have some fun stuff. Uh, there's some different comments that are made about the different races and so forth. Go back to the Iraq again. Uh, they're genetically programmed, and more about that when we talk about the uh, uh, our next podcast. Uh, they're meant to mature quickly, but once you get past adult, you're degenerating rapidly. Right? Uh, certain things have like the Griff has a very high metabolism. So it has a shorter lifespan. You know. Now looking at these, most creatures say venerable age. So once you get to old age, you know, 40, 41 in there, but some of them, you know, are younger than that. Some of them are much older. Like uh let's see, Morgoths. You know, they don't reach venerable age until 120. They also don't get out of adolescence until the 29th year. So, <coughs> pardon me, it's a little different that we have there. So, different uh, comments about these races. Uh, and then a quick bit right here at the bottom of that page, talking about life and death. Okay, and... It kind of confirmed my thought that, you know, Talislanta, the game itself, is could be very deadly very quickly. So, if you want to try to give them a little bit more life and everything, or you had this particular character that seems to be on a roll for a while and you want to keep playing them, there are rules here that says, hey, you know, a recovery rule. If you get reduced to uh, down to zero or less... Uh, we can give an additional bonus on the Constitution rating roll awarded. Um, or using their will, they could, their will strong enough, they could avert death. So there is some you know, ways to do that. Uh, you definitely will, though, have something that's going to happen. If you, you know, got close to death where you should have died but didn't, you're going to have some sort of scar or a limp or you know, loss of attribute points or something. So that does happen in there. We also go through the chronology for Talislanta. This is where uh, you can definitely have a much different fantasy life here. Um, the 
calendar is based upon the cycles of the seven Taslantian moons. So, there are seven days in a week. Well, that sounds okay so far. There are seven weeks in one month. Okay, a little bit different. There are seven months in one year. So, if you do the math, there's only 343 days in a year. Okay, so, you know, most of us can handle that, I'm thinking. You know, 49 days in a month. Okay, that's understandable. Um, the months are named after one of each of the moons that are out there. The days do not have a name. They just, you number them, so it's the third of whatever month, and so forth. Any day that is divisible by seven is typically called a high day, and a lot of the religions consider those sacred days, so that's when you're going to have most ceremonies. There's a calendar of events, or notable dates. So these are things that happen within the Taoslantian year, Things like the 7th of Ardan, the Night of Fools, the city of Zandu, their laws are temporarily rescinded. They're very, very strict. So all of a sudden, you get a whole bunch of drinking and dancing and reveling. That is something that never happens except on that day. The 1st of Laolus, the anniversary of the Battle of the Sea of Sorrow which is a day of mourning in both Amman and Zandu. So, yeah, we got a day of mourning. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things on the calendar here. So, this all of a sudden now starts lending itself into a little bit of strict timekeeping, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Can't have a, a good fantasy campaign without strict timekeeping, right? There is... A section on the major languages of Talislanta, uh, on cults, uh, magical order, secret societies, what they're all about, who would be part of them, what their objectives generally would be. This is not the be-all, end-all, but you could definitely add some to it in there. Uh, unique diseases to Taslantia. you know, and these are just some of them, not all of them. Uh, if there are treatments that are available for them, they are listed. And they give you uh, 36 different ideas for different Taslantian adventures. Okay, you know, what would we normally expect here in Taslantia? Okay, let me see. Uh, patrol the territories adjacent to the Citadel of Akbar with a band of Armite knife fighters. Okay, uh, which is a perilous endeavor, particularly during the Yaksha mating season, when the drunk tribes are on edge. Okay, avian strix, darkling hordes, and the warlike Ur clans also pose a threat to intruders in these regions. Okay, so there's a patrol. Or you protect an individual from different groups. Or you're sailing the oceans. Or you're braving the jungles of the dark coast for buried treasure. Or going to different areas hunting for different ancient uh, ruins and so forth. Trying to uh, extract money, power, magic out of them. 
you're dredging the swamps of Mog for precious amber or hunt the elusive gold beetle, an insect whose body is comprised of pure gold. Well, okay, there, there's something. Uh, locate the hidden lair of a weirdling and gain a wish or search the banks of the Sarcasm River, which is in the Weirwood, for the tombs of ancient Phadrian wizards. So, a lot of good things to start with. Um, it kind of felt like some one-offs in there. But, I got to thinking about it, and, and more and more, it's like, feel like Conan. Okay? This should feel like a Conan story. Conan had a goal. Your characters should have a goal. In fact, some of these characters, uh, their race has a general goal or general idea of what they want. So you've got a goal. How are you going to make that happen on the continent of Atlanta? And just like Conan took so many different types of jobs and things like that, your character is going to take different types of jobs and go around the continent. Now, is he, are these characters going to go everywhere on the continent? No, because there's some some of these characters, if they go to certain areas, they're definitely going to <laughs> be killed. There's a section with uh, Taslantia terms that are listed out, several pages in there. They talk about the different currencies that are available. Um, there's a sample scenario for you to have an adventure. It's made for a group of five to seven characters. So there you are, low level between first and seventh level. Uh, and it spells it out pretty well for you. And it's nice little maps in there. Uh, I would love for it to put the map back in this place again, but if you go to the very beginning, you could look at the different climactic zones <clears throat> and the seasons. There's only three seasons in Taslanta, spring, median, and fall. There really is not a winter per se, though if you are up in the, um, <clears throat> pardon me, the subarctic and arctic areas, well, you already got snow. So different little zones and how variable things could be in there. There is an interesting zone. Climate zone known as the aberrant zone. And this is where, you know, some people might think it's like Texas where, you know, you don't like the weather, you wait 15 minutes and it'll change on you. It's probably a little more extreme than that where depending upon where you're at, you can have a change to your uh, temperature but then you get things like acid rain or the ghost wind or the witch wind and things like that. See, what was the ghost wind? Um, a chilling wind which blows forth from the spirit realms, uh, so forth, while seldom of intensity sufficient to cause any great difficulty to travelers, have an ominous effect on most types of living creatures. Wild beasts become agitated. Domestic animals may panic and desert their masters. Intelligent beings are often still with a vague sensation of fear. In extreme cases, individuals may experience temporary attacks of insanity or claim 
to be possessed by vile spirit forms. Or it might, in the uh, very, not as frequent, but one or more shadow whites may be carried on the ghost wind. So these winds happen quickly, but the effects will last for quite some time. It finishes up with a pronunciation guide and then some GM tables uh, that are common for you to use. Basically the action table uh, and then your mishaps table, combat mishaps, magical mishaps. Uh, range for missile weapons are in here. Hit points for inanimate objects are also listed in here. So a lot of things that are real quick in here that you need. Um, and the one thing that I was not that I had to search for within the rules itself is listed here: the non-proficiency penalty. When you try to use a skill or weapon that you're not proficient in, you automatically have a minus five for the modifier. Does not mean that you can't do a particular thing. Just remember, you've got you know it's a 25% chance of it not happening. Which now, with a non-proficiency penalty, you're talking about a 50% chance that whatever you're trying to do won't work, and half of that is a mishap. So, definitely want to be careful about that. There you have it. The dive into the Talislanta Handbook. Appreciate you hanging out with me on these four podcasts. Hopefully this has given you a little insight. Uh, some of you may have been reading along with me. You might have some opinions and everything. Great to hear what you have to say. Again, all opinions uh, expressed within this podcast are mine. Mine alone. No apologies for what I say. And if you, um, if you take offense, well, you took offense. That, that's it. <laughs> so, where are we going to next? Uh, we're going to go to the next book, The Chronicles of Talislanta. This is more giving you a better feel for the continent itself, the races within it, and what one could expect. So, that's going to be a, uh, an interesting uh, book to go through. Uh, whether or not I go through the entire thing in one go or not, I don't know yet. We'll see how long it takes. <laughs> Again, thanks for hanging out on this. And we will see you here in the future. Get your games in. Go out and see those people that you know. It's time to go back to cons. Let's have a good time. Later. Uh-huh.